I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. Welcome to The Connection. There are an estimated 10 million species of plants and animals living on Earth, and we humans are just one of them. Even though we are completely outnumbered, what we do, including feeding ourselves, extracting energy, exploring the planet, and building communities, affects everything we come in contact with. We are driven in part by our inquiring minds and equally by our desire for domination and control. Our guest, evolutionary biologist Shane Campbell-Staten, is the host of the PBS series Human Footprint. It's about how interconnected we are to the world around us and how our actions are transforming that world in big and small ways, including speeding up the process of evolution. His new PBS series is Evolution Earth. We are at a critical juncture as we live with the consequences of what we do, like climate change, what with the hottest July on record this summer. Our choices really do matter for the survival of our fellow species and ourselves. The earth will be just fine without us. We have a lot to talk about, and Shane Campbell-Staten, nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Nice to have you with us. Let me begin with a kind of a broad-based question, but when you think broadly speaking about the story of evolution, is that also the story of connection? Absolutely. I think you know the story of evolution is probably the biggest story of connection that exists, I think, in the living world. So evolution is like the singular process that links every living thing that ever was is and will be together you know it's all one continuous story that's driven by this fundamental process underpinning it i wonder whether our arrogance if i can put it that way that we often we meaning broadly speaking um kind of remove ourselves from from nature maybe even in evolution thinking that we can control things how do you see that so we, we do have um, we like to believe that we can uh, we can control things, but if history has showed us anything, is that we do not have the ability to control things nearly to the degree that you know we hope to have. Um, you know, we see time and time again, you know, things that start off as you know seemingly insignificant decisions can very quickly cascade out of hand uh, and have a lot of repercussions that were not anticipated. Like fossil fuels and climate change? Absolutely. You know, so it's one thing to, um, you know, fossil fuels came about in a time where, you know, especially in the Northeast, you know, a lot of uh, oil uh, that was used uh, was actually whale oil. Uh, and that was eventually re replaced by petroleum, which seemed like, you know, a pretty amazing find. But at the time when we began using it and the degree to which we used it uh, and are using it now, we had absolutely no idea what the cascading effects were going to be. And it was only until relatively recently that we're really starting to understand the magnitude of the effect of those actions. 
a lot of what you study and and and, and a lot of what is in the, the the PBS series that you've been involved in is just how we humans are speeding up evolution and there's some really extraordinary examples of that one is a is a lizard that you have been studying in in Puerto Rico what did you find yes yeah, so um, myself and um, my collaborator Kristen Winchell who's at uh, NYU uh, we've been collaborating for a while now looking at these small lizards on the island of Puerto Rico. And uh, these small lizards, they're very abundant both in cities and in forests. And uh, Kristen, she first started looking at, because these animals are very arboreal, they spend a lot of time you know, in on vertical surfaces, like in trees and stuff in forests. But in cities, they spend a lot of time on like the sides of buildings right. and much wider um, perches that they use in these cities. And she found that you know, over and over again, these urban populations were evolving longer limbs and larger toe pads than their forest counterparts. And cities, uh, density areas also have a tendency to be heat sinks. They produce a lot of heat and they hold a lot of heat. That's what we call the urban heat island effect. And a lot of our collaborative work um, has shown that uh, urban lizards are also able to tolerate higher temperatures than their forest counterparts. So they're evolving this extreme heat resistance uh, in these cities as well. And, and these cities are not very old. I mean, uh, San Juan is, uh, I think, the oldest city in Puerto Rico, and it's about 500 years old, mm -hmm. I believe. Mm -hmm. um, but a lot of the cities that we've been looking at you know, are only decades old. And we see this pattern, not only is it playing out, but every time populations move into cities independently, they're evolving these same solutions to solve the problems that cities present, showing us that the process of evolution, not only can it be very rapid, but it can also be very, very repeatable. Well, and that's so interesting because it does show the resilience that can come with this level of adaptation. But of course, you know, on the other hand, we are seeing extinctions and, and, and critters that are not going to survive these hot uh, urban environments. Absolutely. You know, I mean, when you think about life, I think the thing that strikes me, especially studying evolution in the Anthropocene, this like age of humans, yeah. is that life is a paradox, right? It's both, you know, simultaneously, it's very fragile, but also relentlessly resilient in so many ways. And, you know, so as much as we see these processes of rapid adaptation playing out, it's also very clear that many organisms just can't keep pace with the rapid changes that are being made to the planet right now. In your Human Footprint series, there's a section on the wolves of Chernobyl. Of course, you know, the the uh, nuclear uh, uh, devastation of that particular city, people had to leave largely. There might be a few people living there, but nonetheless, the wolves moved in. Um, and what did you find? So, <clears throat> so we've been finding in Chernobyl, you know, after um, the accident at Chernobyl, uh, humans were evacuated, but 
But since that time, a lot of wildlife has actually moved into the Chernobyl exclusion zone yeah. and has uh, proliferated. So that's everything from insects and birds to European bison and boar, and then even apex predators like wolves. Uh, so my lab, uh, led by uh, my postdoc, Dr. Kara Love, uh, we've been studying the wolves in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, uh, trying to understand how uh, they have been uh, dealing with this sort of multi-generational exposure to ionizing radiation. Uh, and there's this principle basically of evolutionary medicine, you know, that you can understand a lot of human conditions by studying the extreme forms that have evolved across the planet, things that have evolved to solve problems that our bodies uh, have a lot of trouble with. So we're using uh, these wolves to try to understand how natural selection might um, shape organisms to be more resistant or more resilient to cancers. We know a lot about the genes that you know, will make an individual more sensitive um, to different types of cancers or more likely to get specific types of cancers, but we know a lot less about uh, specific genetic variants that might make an individual more resistant or more uh, resilient uh, to cancer. But in this situation, uh, despite the travesty of this uh, mistake, uh, natural selection hmm. may be on the on the way to solving uh, this problem with uh, this wolf population. I mean, one can an anticipate or imagine then the human application uh, from, as you say, from this terrible mistake that happened so many years ago. Absolutely. And I, I think that it's, uh, you know, it's sort of a, an exemplar of, you know, what the human footprint is. You know, we, something happens, we do something, we make some mistake, or some decision, and it has these cascading effects, you know, that can ripple across the tree of life and change things very rapidly, very drastically. But then those ripples at some point make their way back to us and affect us in some way, in some ways, you know, that are potentially good in terms of the things that we can learn, but in a lot of ways that are bad and mm. unexpected. Well, and it does raise the question about just, you know, how much can can plant and animal life take of human activity? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's easy when you um, when you have these examples of rapid evolutionary response and adaptation, it's easy to say like, oh, well, you know, nature is going to take care of it. Everything is going to be okay. But that is definitely not the case as um, much as we have these specific examples of adaptation, we also know that we are in a time of very rapid species extinction. I mean, the only, in terms of like our impact on the planet, the only other events in Earth's history that have impacted the living world as much as we have, have been the five major mass extinction events in Earth's history. Wow. And, and is this rapid pace of evolution, is that because of human activity, because of what we do? Absolutely. Uh, in most cases, certainly. Um, so the thing is, like humans, the thing about us is we don't 
we don't do anything just a little bit. No, we right? don't. Anytime That's an understatement, Jay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Like we go, we do things, you know, um, to ridiculous degrees. And the the differences that we make, the pressures that we're putting on the planet, they're, they are so incredibly intense that it, it can make for very, very strong uh, selective pressures that then necessitate very strong responses by the organisms that then have to survive whatever those changes may be and those changes are so multi-dimensional you know everything from habitat destruction to urbanization to the movement of invasive species across the globe to you know feral domesticates making their way you know into uh into wild environments things like feral hogs and feral goats and these mm -hmm. sorts of things, um, you know, even to global warming and extreme weather events, you know, all of these things are changing very rapidly and they're coming at the living world from all sorts of different dimensions simultaneously. And that's just a lot for any organism to try to deal with. Well, and I'm assuming including the human being species. Let's take a very short break and we'll get back to our conversation. Shane Campbell Staten, our guest today on The Connection. He's an evolutionary biologist at Princeton University and he studies how we humans are changing the planet and the animals and plants that live here with us. And he's got a couple of PBS series, one called Human Footprint and a new one called Evolution Earth. We've got much more to talk about after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moss Cohen talking with Princeton evolutionary biologist Shane Campbell Staten about how we humans are transforming the world in dramatic and surprising ways. Shane, in my introduction, I said, you know, obviously the choices we make have a have a deep and abiding impact on, on ourselves and, and the, the, the creatures and plants that we share the earth with, but... Does the earth care? <laughs> Does the earth care what we do? I mean, the thing is, you know, earth, the earth, generally speaking, you know, I mean, it has, you know, it has no morals besides what we place on it. You know, the, you know, the planet and especially life, right, the process of evolution you know, it's not a forward-looking process. It's not a judgmental process. It's not, you know, planning for anything. It's a response to current circumstances. And, you know, so when people ask the question, you know, it's like, oh, will life yeah. survive humans? You know, for me, the, the answer is yes. Life, generally speaking, will almost certainly survive the things that we throw at the planet the bigger question is you know one what will that life look like on the other end because it is probably going to look very different than biodiversity does right now and the bigger question is are we going to survive the things that we're doing to the planet and i think you know that is a much bigger question mark than life generally speaking do you think we will do you have an opinion on that well, I think Will we depends. survive ourselves in a sense? Yeah. So 
I think that it depends on the decisions that we make now and in the very near future. I think if we continue down the road that we have been going on, um, then I I don't really see a way that you know we could possibly survive all of the changes that we've been making to the planet. But you know I think there's still hope. You know we as long as there is still time to make decisions as long as long as we have the ability and freedom to make decisions there's always hope mm. to bend you know the arc of history you know in the right direction you have a section in uh, human footprint that about invasive species and and at one point during this section you ask uh the people you're talking to are we humans? Are we an invasive species? And the answer is essentially yes. And if you think about it, we are perhaps the top invasive species. Oh, most certainly. I mean, we have spread across the planet, you know, in very rapid time. And everywhere we go, we disrupt ecosystems. I mean, the, the thing about the process of evolution is that it's it's based on balance, evolution and ecology, the way that species interact. You know, if you go into a stable ecosystem, there are all of these interactions that are playing out. It's kind of like the pieces of a clock, right? There's like all these intricate interacting pieces that together make the functionality of what an ecosystem is. And invasive species, many times they, when they enter those environments, they disrupt those pieces and how they interact with each other. And if there's one thing that we know how to do very well, and mm. we learned very early on in our evolutionary history, is how to move into a new place and completely disrupt whatever was there before. We're the top predator. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's an interesting little sidebar in the invasive species part, which there, there's the, the the 16-foot pythons, which I don't want to spend a whole heck of a lot of time even thinking about. But there's a whole <laughs> section about, um, you, you looked very happy, I have to say. You look like you were absolutely fascinated while uh, these python hunters were grabbing these 16-foot pythons out of the Everglades. But you had a really interesting section on, on the abundance or the overabundance of carp. And rather than come up with some technological solution, you say, well, why not put it on the menu? And maybe that would solve several problems. Exactly. You know, I mean, there are a lot of invasive species, you know, that have either been introduced on purpose or introduced um, by accident that, you know, we can certainly eat, you know, and if there's one other thing that humans love to do is, you know, we love good food. Everybody loves good food. Sure. I don't care, you know, where you're from, you know, political leanings, whatever. Everybody loves a good meal. You know, so if you can take this extra biomass, you know, that is actually disrupting ecosystems and you can turn it into a food source, something that people want to eat. You know, because there are so many human beings, that's that would be potentially a very quick way um, to help to at least alleviate some of the pressure of uh, some of these invasive species. And that's everything from, you know, like Asian carp 
uh, to a uh, invasive boar across uh, the southern United States, um, you know, to many other species that have invaded things like lionfish and other species that have invaded that are certainly edible and can be quite delicious. Uh, the problem with carp, you know, is that there are, you know, what seem to be very, um, you know, very small things that get in the way. Uh, in in the instance of the Asian carp, it is a very bony fish. Hmm. And as Americans, like we don't like bony fish. Oh, no. Like we <laughs> want to eat, you know, a nice succulent piece of meat without having to worry about the bones. But that seems like such a small problem, you know, for someone to have to deal with. Yet, you know, that seemingly small thing has prevented carp or what they're now called kopi um, from being you know, a huge uh, menu item across most of the United States. Well, and if you give it a fancy name, people might be willing to try it, right? <laughs> Re rename true. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and they have, uh, like, Kopi is the name. They have sort of rebranded it. Right. You know, maybe if you say it with, like, a, a fancy French accent or something like that, it'll it'll help <laughs> a little bit more. You also spend a fair amount of time with, with hunters, many of whom... Uh, hunt for uh, for not to sell, but for their own use to feed their families, to feed themselves, feed their communities. But it's interesting to see how something as basic, and I'm assuming this is how our ancestors survived, um, how that becomes commodified. And next thing you know, you know, you've got these huge cattle farms, and you've got big cattle, and then all the the after effects of that. Yeah, and I think that is the real mark of humans you know it's you know a lot well sometimes it is just the things that we do but many times it's not just the things that we do but the degree to which we do them you know that is the problem you know if you know an individual is you know goes out hunting to feed themselves and their family and that footprint is very different than you know, industrialized agriculture where you need millions of acres of land, you know, to uh, to grow domesticated uh, organisms to feed the planet. And it's gotten to a remarkable extreme. And by remarkable extreme, I mean, now, you know, there are thousands of species on this planet, generally speaking. Um, and there are thousands of species in our terrestrial environments. But if you look at biomass, 97% of the total terrestrial biomass on this planet is humans and the animals that we have domesticated. Wow. The rest of those species, everything from beetles and ants to elephants and bison, fall within that last 3%. I'm just uh, absorbing that. That's that's pretty incredible. And that is Shane Campbell-Staten. He is our guest today on The Connection. He's an evolutionary biologist at Princeton University. And as I mentioned, he studies how we humans are changing the planet and the plants and animals that live on this planet with us. 
and he's the host of uh, two PBS series, one called Human Footprint and the other one, a new one called Evolution Earth. Well, let's talk about dogs, and we have such a fascinating relationship with this uh, with this animal that really has reinvented itself, I guess, from wolves to what they are today in order to be with us. And I often wonder, you know, what do dogs get out of this relationship? Um, well, I mean, I think in terms, from, from an evolutionary perspective, um, you know, dogs are evolutionary winners. Um, you know, I mean, if you think about, you know, other canid species on this planet. So if you look at the ancestors of dogs, uh, wolves, there are maybe 250,000 wolves, if that many, right. um, you know, that exist across our planet. Meanwhile, somewhere near a million dogs are born every single day. Wow. And so if you're talking about a success story, I mean, dogs are, you know, an incredible success story. And, you know, if you look at the history of dogs, like, you know, we when we think of dogs, we like to think of, you know, Westminster and these like incredible, <laughs> beautiful breeds that we've produced. But that's only been relatively recent uh in dogs history you know our history with dogs goes back ten thousand years and most of that history dogs have lived alongside us more along the way that you know you see street dogs live you know in communities across the planet like i went to you know mexico city that has you know i think more than a million uh street dogs and you know these dogs are really interesting because they are obviously very successful because they you know most dogs on this planet live like they do most dogs on this planet don't live in a house with us being you know pet like you know i do with my great dane you know most dogs live like these street dogs do and they found this niche where you know they're not wild animals but they're also not pets so they found this sort of this world in between two different worlds, this like very special niche where they're living alongside us uh, in this very interesting way. But they, and it is, it's a rough life. When you, when you look at these street dogs, you know, uh, it is a very rough way to live, but they make the most out of what they can get. And they've been very, very successful at it. And creating their own kind of community within this large urban setting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I have to say that seeing stray dogs just always breaks my heart. I just feel like, you know, they should be home with us and, and, and in bed with us. But it seems that dogs are, you know, the show is called The Connection. It's so much about connection and companionship. Very much so. And I, I think dogs are such an extreme example of that connection that we can have with, you know, other species, right? So, you know, when you think about, you know, how we communicate with each other, right, in order for dogs to be what they are to us, we have to be able to communicate with them in a very specific kind of way, and they have to be able to understand us. But, you know, even you know, when we look at our ability to communicate with our closest ancestors, our, our closest relatives on this planet, chimps, 
him in terms of like giving chimps directions and things like that, they have no idea what we're talking about and they don't particularly care what we're doing. Um, and the same is true for wolves. You know, they just don't understand what we're trying to communicate and don't seem like they particularly care. But dogs somehow have crossed this boundary, you know, of evolutionary history and have formed this very intimate connection where they can understand us. They can understand our language. They can understand uh, very subtle body movements uh, and interpret them and put things into action such that, you know, they can become, that they have become, you know, a, an incredible tool and an amazing companion for us. And why do you have Great Danes? Just curious. Oh, I always wanted a big dog that, you know, <laughs> I could I could wrestle around with. Um, and, you know, uh, it was a it was a little bit of a toss up for me, like what, you know, exactly which breed I was going to get. But then I saw a picture of this big puppy that was, <laughs> you know, gray with black spots and he was just feet and ears and and nose, and I just absolutely <laughs> fell in love and knew I had to have them. Oh, that's great. You mentioned chimps, and there's a really fascinating um, uh, study, I guess, in, in, in your new PBS series about these chimps that are living in a particularly hot and dry part of, is it, I forget which country it is, in, in Africa, I believe. In Senegal. In Senegal. And they have, you know, they've moved sort of out of the so-called jungle into this very hot and dry and arid area and have figured out how to adapt. Tell us what they're doing. Yeah, so um, the chimps in this Fongolia region um, of, of Senegal, they live in essentially the hottest, driest environments that any chimp population lives in. Um, you know, most uh, chimpanzees live in um, much cooler, wetter, sort of forested areas. And in order to cope with this extreme environment, they have adopted very extreme behaviors. So they have um, ranges that are 10 times larger than chimps elsewhere. Um, you know, they have um, uh, one of the biggest limitations for them is, uh, is water. And when they do find water sources, a lot of times it's like kind of nasty, stagnant yeah. water. Yeah. And but they've developed this uh, ability to like dig holes near those water sources, and then the water filters through the sand, and then they drink the water um, from those holes that they dig, and it's much cleaner and clearer and healthy for them uh, to drink. They also uh, participate in tool use um, more often than chimps elsewhere. Uh, they're less hairy uh, than uh, than chimps uh, in other regions. And they also walk upright um, a lot more than uh, chimps elsewhere. So um, Jill Pritz, who's um, one of the, um, the main uh, scientists in this Fongolia chimp project, um, she's been very interested, you know, she's been studying these chimps, I think, for over 20 years now. Uh, and she's been really interested in sort of what these chimps can tell us about our own very early evolutionary um, history. Well, in fact, we're almost up in a break here. But as as I was watching that, I felt like, well, am I looking at my, you know, great, 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 great. There are too many greats to, you know, my, my ancestors there watching them using tools, watching them 
essentially walking or operating upright. It is almost impossible to watch them and not think about ourselves. Yeah. And just because you can see them, the idea of using tools is one of the things that makes us human, correct? That is what we thought for a really long time. Is like we thought tool use was something that was very human specific, you know. And then we found out that not only do some other great apes do it, but some birds do it, and mm-hmm. other species do it as well. So you know, many times, you know, as we've learned about um, behaviors in the natural world, we've had to sort of redefine our understanding of what it means to be human. Well, well, you're talking about we are talking about evolution and we're talking about connection and change. And again, Shane Campbell Staten is our guest. He's an evolutionary biologist, works at Princeton University. And uh, a lot of his research has to do with how us people, we humans are changing the planet. Uh, this this time that we're living in where the, the change is so rapid and uh, so dramatic, almost happening in front of our eyes. We're going to take a very short break and then get back to our conversation. Much more to talk about after the short break, including cotton. We'll be right back. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Moscow-Wayne. We are talking about how we humans are transforming the planet in dramatic ways, reshaping the world's ecosystems and the plants and animals we live with. We're also talking about how animals are adapting to those changes and what all of this tells about tells us about who we are as a species. And again, if you're just joining us, Shane campbell Staten is our guest, evolutionary biologist at Princeton University. He's got two PBS series, one called Human Footprint and a new one called Evolution Earth. Uh, Shane, I don't know if we can or if I can do justice to this story of cotton. It's a fascinating story of many twists and turns and and connections, starting with uh, geology and limestone, the horrors of the slave trade, and then ending up with voting patterns and and what we see today. Can you synthesize that for us? Yes, I can try my best. Um, (laughs) So this is, you know, I mean, it is a pretty... um, sort of meandering um, story of interconnectedness that you wouldn't necessarily um, expect. And it actually was quite surprising for me. So, I mean, this story, when we think about African-American history, you know, typically we think about it starting, you know, when, you know, the first slave ships landed, um, you know, in the new world. But, you know, the, um, the ultimate factors that began shaping the circumstances that led to the transatlantic slave trade actually began in the Cretaceous, like a hundred million yeah. years ago. Yeah. Um, and the in uh, the Southeast, there is uh, this particular uh, swath of soils that is known as the Black Belt. It's a um, very nutrient rich um, soil deposit that move that sort of stretches across the the southeastern U.S. and uh, the Black Belt is where most cotton was planted um, for um, much of its agricultural history in the in the United States. And as such, it's where the highest density of uh, enslaved African peoples were concentrated across um, across this Black Belt region. And 
you know, as time sort of ticked on, you know, with cotton, you know, I mean, it was one of the sort of foundations of the U.S. economy. Um, it was a, a worldwide, um, uh, it was a, um, a textile that was needed and wanted uh, worldwide. And, but at some point, you know, the empire of cotton fell because of this sort of innocuous invasive species yeah. uh, called the boll weevil. It came up from Mexico uh, and, you know, it bores holes in uh, these cotton bowls uh, and uh, to lay its eggs and it sort of destroys the cotton. And, you know, within just uh, a couple of decades, you know, this boll weevil, this one small invasive beetle sort of spread across uh, the Southern United States and decimated uh, a lot of uh, the cotton industry. And with the fall of the cotton industry, um, you know, the, uh, and with the uh, emancipation of enslaved peoples, you had a lot of, um, uh, you have a, uh, a lot of uh, farmers, black farmers that stayed around in uh, this region of uh, the black belt. And so, after the civil rights movement, you know, when um, when we had uh, when we first gained the right um, to vote, you began to see like very interesting patterns, voting patterns appear yeah. across the South, yeah, in that you saw this like blue streak, you know, in uh, of counties in this sort of sea of red that typically defines the southeastern U.S. in uh, every voting cycle, and that started the first year uh, that Black Americans had the right to vote, and it has gotten stronger and stronger every voting cycle. Um, and But that voting, that um, pattern of voting, that swath of blue, it traces almost exactly that ancient Cretaceous coastline, you know, that existed 100 million years ago. You know, so the connections, you know, that when we think about what African-American history is, you know, I mean, it started before we were even a species, which is kind of profound to think about. You know, and not only that, but with the fall of the cotton industry, you had, you know, this mass migration of African-Americans out of the South, you know, into the rest of the United States, which came with a massive um, cultural uh, expansion in many ways, especially when it comes to music, you know, from the Delta blues to the Chicago blues, you know, you have, you know, West Coast, um, you know, uh, uh, the West Coast styles of music, East Coast styles of music, Midwestern styles of music that all emerged out of this, this great migration. And what's interesting is that without that one invasive species, the boll weevil that destroyed the cotton industry, I don't know if we would have jazz wow. or rock and roll or hip hop or any of this sort of quintessentially American music that we enjoy today. But the idea that those two things are connected um, seems very odd, but they are intimately connected to each other. And, and there's so many parts of the story, obviously just underscoring the the power of evolution and that evolution isn't just within our dna it's it's our culture you know it's our language it's our music and it flows back and forth you know like mm -hmm. you said in you know at the beginning of this segment we like to think of ourselves 
as somehow removed from the natural world. But the natural world, like we shape the natural world, and then those changes turn back around and shape us in all of these different ways. They shape our history, they shape our culture, they shape where we live, how we live, and all of these intimate ways that play out in our everyday lives that we just typically don't see until those patterns are actually laid out for us. And I think that was one of the most profound things that I mm. that I learned, you know, going through um, you know, all of this travel filming um the human footprint as an expert, you know, in uh evolution in the Anthropocene and how humans act as engines of evolutionary change, you know, I came into this, you know, I was like, oh, like I know you know, what domestication is, right, in terms of cotton. I, you know, I know what invasive species are, but then having conversations, not just with other scientists, but with people that are inter, uh, that are intimately connected with each of these subjects from very different perspectives, you know, farmers, fishermen, um, you know, hunters, having those conversations was a very humbling experience. And it made me realize you know, as much as I have studied this subject, how narrow my focus has been and how absolutely pervasive this connection between humans and nature is. It's fundamental, I mean, absolutely fundamental. And, and profound. Let me ask you a little bit about yourself. You grew up in, the, in South Carolina, is that right? Yes. Yeah. What was your, what was your interest in biology? So that's is kind of interesting. So I feel like when you, especially people who, who do evolution in ecology, like I do, yeah. typically when you ask that question, they have, you know, kind of a cute story about hiking and, <laughs> right. you know, or like fishing and things <laughs> like that. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, I was raised by a single mom, me and my sister, um, you know, and I was a latchkey kid, you know, so my mom, you know, she worked really long hours, sometimes 48, sometimes 72 hour shifts you know, pushing a taxi cab, you know, in Sumter, South Carolina, making $2 and some odd cents an hour. She was a cab, know, a cab driver, your mom? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so when I wasn't at school, I was at home taking care of my little sister. So I didn't have a whole lot of exposure to, you know, to nature at all. The very first time I ever slept outside actually was my very first night of field research as a graduate student at Harvard. Wow. Um, you know, but I got into biology through television. It was, you know, Jeff Corwin and Steve Irwin and, you know, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom and, you know, these sorts of, of shows that really got me fascinated with nature and the animals that existed and all these beautiful exotic places that I never thought I would ever have a chance to see or go to. Um, and that sparked, you know, that sort of initial fascination, one might say obsession, that um, that eventually led me down the road to become an evolutionary biologist. There's another part of your story that I can totally connect with because I was not a good student. <laughs> and it took you a while, I guess, to be a good student not knowing how to study. And I, I completely related to your, your struggles. And you had a real kind of come to Jesus moment when you went to college. I did. It was, you talking about a humbling experience. Um, you know, starting college um, was probably 
the most humbling experience of my life. You know, when I started, I had very little background in science or math, but I had this intense fascination with nature. So, you know, it seemed like, you know, the the most likely thing to do, you know, that made most sense was to, you know, be a biology major. So they were like, okay, if you want to be a biology major, your first semester, you take biology, chemistry, calculus, and an elective. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> all right, well, let's Not exactly let's like watching, watching those shows on TV, right? No, definitely not. It's a whole <laughs> different world. You know, and I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, um, you know, because I didn't have the background that I needed. I had absolutely no idea how to study. I would spend on average maybe five hours a day in the library looking at books, you know, but not actually being able to retain any of the information just because I, I just had no idea what I was doing. And that first year, I failed everything truly like absolutely everything wow. i think i finished my first year with like a 0 0.65 gpa wow you know? that really and is feeling everything <laughs> yeah yeah not to rub it in jane but yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah go ahead rub it in a little, a little <laughs> no bit, I, I was like, right no, behind you, you believe me but yeah. go ahead you really did fail absolutely everything yes wow. i did <laughs> um you know so for me you know it would it would, it would have been one thing if i had been like partying the whole time or something like that. You know, I didn't even take my first drink until like two years after college. Mm. You know, I, you know, tried really hard and just absolutely failed. And that's, I think, always a humbling experience for anyone. So I remember going back home and, you know, I was like, mom, I tried, you know, I really tried and I failed. Maybe it's time for me, and it was really expensive, you know, maybe it's time for me to like, you know, go get a job. And, you know, my mom, she looked at me, you know, and I knew that there was something that she wanted to say, but she knew she shouldn't say, you know, so she just looked at me for a minute and she's like, listen, if you think that if you're making this decision because you think it's the right decision for you, you go right ahead and do that. And I'll back that play, Wow. you know, but if you're making this decision because you're afraid of failure, you're afraid of going after the thing that you really want, then you should you should sit and think about it. Because if you make that decision and you move away from this thing that you think that you want, that's going to be your passion, you're going to live the rest of your life asking yourself, what if? What if I had continued? What if I had found another way? And that's a really, really rough life to live. You know, so... You know, she told me to, you know, say, you have the whole summer, sit and think about it and, you know, and let me know what you want to do. So that's what I did. I went up to my room and I cried for a bit, you know, and, you know, did the the thing that, you know, angsty youngsters do. Um, and then I started thinking, well, if it's not going to be biology, what is it going to be? And I just couldn't come up with anything for weeks. I just couldn't come up with anything. And then... At that point, it just made everything so clear. It's like, well, if it's not going to be anything else, then it's got to be this, which means I have to find a way to get through. And, and you clearly from that did. point on, it was a yeah. straight arrow. Yeah, no, yeah. You, you clearly did. What, what I love about that story is that your mother trusted you to make 
not not maybe not this decision, but she trusted you enough that you would take it seriously and think it through. Yeah, and that's probably the greatest gift amongst all the incredible gifts my mother has has given me throughout my life. That's probably one of the greatest. That she trusts, that she believes in you. Exactly. Yeah. Shane, we're almost out of time here, but I want to squeeze in one more story. And again, this is from Human Footprint, but maybe also to end on a positive note, um, because I think there is so much angst about the climate and 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 uh, environmental disasters and degradation. But you do um, have a wonderful portrait of, of Singapore, which I believe is something like the third most dense city in the world. But what they yes. have done to bring, in a sense, bring nature inside the city. We have about a minute or so. Yeah, so um, with Singapore, you know, it's been really, and typically when we think about cities, you know, it's almost the exact opposite of nature. But what they've done, you know, in Singapore is, you know, Singapore is a city that is built within nature. Basically everything that is built, any structure that is built, as much green space is taken away um, by a structure, they have to reincorporate that much green space into the structure huh. itself. Huh. And it's gotten to the point where, you know, there are some complexes that have higher biodiversity than some of you know the pristine natural areas around Singapore. So they've really rethought, you know, and sort of reinvented what the city is. And, you know, I think that, you know, not every place can do exactly what Singapore is doing. And I don't think every place has to, but there's a lot that we can learn from that situation to ask ourselves like what does the city of the future look like? And then in a, in a bigger way, like what do we want our future and the future of life on this planet to look like in general? Because at the end of the day, our decisions are going to be what determines that, you know, and we can't, you know, we can't buy out of that decision-making process because even not making a decision is a decision in and of itself. Indeed. Well, we have to leave it there. Shane Campbell-Staten, thank you so much for joining us today on The Connection. Really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Evolutionary biologist at Princeton University. He's got two PBS series, uh, one called Human Footprint and one called Evolution Earth. Well, we want to hear from you. Email us at theconnection at whyy.org and tell us what you want us to talk about. You can check out our website, whyy.org slash theconnection. You can download a podcast of the show wherever you get your podcasts. And uh, Al Banks, the engineer for today's edition of the show. And it's produced by Debbie Builder and Paige Murray Bessler. I'm Marty Moss-Cohen. Thank you for joining us.